66. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping with your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts, and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, yesterday there were a number of us here from City Church that were at the One Race event in Piedmont Park. I want to say thank you for those of you who were part of it. For those of you who don't know, One Race is an organization, really almost a ministry, to really devote the, to pursue the church, that the church might pursue racial reconciliation where it's needed. And so we were challenged we, uh, a number of different ways to practice and participate that. We also had a time of worship, and uh, the band was called Tribal, amazing worship together. And, and uh, at one point, the worship leader turned, and she looked at everyone. She said, now, I want you to turn around and, and look at everyone right now as we worship. And she says, look, the nations have gathered there's a quote from Revelation, I, I believe, and, and just the nations would be gathered. And, and she said, this is our DNA of our God. God is putting his DNA on display, being made in his image. He's displaying the beauty, his expression of himself. I thought, how beautiful, how encouraging, right, as it was pertaining to this issue. Uh, but here we are in a series, right, that we just started a couple of weeks ago called DNA. And what we've been saying is, that just like what the worship leader said, she was saying it's you know, DNA is our genetic expression into the world. Well, every church has its DNA. And we share a lot of DNA in common with other churches around the globe as we speak. But we also have some distinctive DNA that gives us our distinct personality. And so this fall, if you're brand new to City Church, what we are doing is exploring that DNA. We're exploring what does it mean to be part of City Church? What is it that we believe? What are our convictions? And how shall we then live? And so this morning we... On the other side of hearing from Mike last week, talk about the value of our children. The week before that, I preached on the gospel. What is the gospel? Why is it the foundation of everything? Today, we come to one of my favorites in the series, I think, and that is talking about what does it mean to love the Word of God? 
And we come to the one psalm. I mean, all the psalms do this to a certain extent. But man, Psalm 119, the longest psalm of all, 176 verses. And one verse after another. I mean, you probably heard that over 16 verses or so. But if you were to read the whole thing, it gets repetitious like this. I love your word. I love your word. I love your word. And what the psalmist is saying to us is this is where the words for life are found. In other words, if we want life, and who doesn't want more abundant life? Who doesn't want more shalom, more flourishing in their life? If we want that, then we need to know God's word intimately, as we're going to see today. And so I want to say to you this morning that there's a question you should all be asking is, how do I get more life as a follower of Jesus? If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're here on a spiritual exploration, what would it look like to get that sort of life that we're talking about this morning? Three things. Number one, we have to commit ourselves to the authority of the Scriptures. Number two, we have to have a right attitude to come to the Scriptures. Then finally, we have to see hope in this place. Authority, attitude, and hope. So let's jump in here with the first thing, and that is recognizing the authority of the Scriptures. Look at verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Most of us as modern people, when we hear the word law, we probably think of attorneys, right? We think of uh, the fine print and the contract and things like that. But the word here, law, is actually Torah. Torah in the Hebrew means instruction. And so all of Scripture is instruction. And so Torah, and you'll see these other words, commandments, uh, you see the word precepts and so forth. These are all synonyms of really the same idea of instruction, Torah here. And of course, as you think about that, you think, well, you know, that's a, that's a concept, that's a belief, that's a conviction that maybe on modern years is kind of hard to embrace. I was thinking about um, the movie Pirates of the, the Caribbean. Remember Captain Barbosa? And I, I for Kiri Knightley's character, I forget uh, her name, but her character is, uh, is kind of up in arms with uh, Captain Barbosa because he's not following the Pirates Code. Remember this scene? And so she says, there's a code. You must follow the code. And remember how he responded? He said, the code is more what you call guidelines, the natural rules, right? Sorry, that was bad pirate speak there. But, but you get the idea, right? It's more guidelines than actual rules. I think a lot of people in our world today look at Scripture in particular, but really maybe in general, authority in today's day and age is sort of like, eh, it's more like guidelines. When I agree with it, yes. I'm not so sure about that. Out with the pirate's goat. Got a thing like that. And I was thinking about this bumper sticker that I see on cars, uh, primarily here in the city, not so much in the suburbs where my parents live. Question authority. And, you know, every time I see that sticker over the years, I've, I've always had two thoughts in my mind. If I could have a conversation, I'd say, by whose authority should I follow that? Right? Think about that for a second, right? Some of you are just catching that. Uh, I want to say, question, okay, but by whose authority? Right? But then the second thing I want to say is, I'm not sure that you really believe that, actually. Well, no, 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 I know. This is question authority. That's why it's on the back of my car. Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, if I were to hit your car, all right, I ran a red light, and, uh, and I were in, in traffic court, and I, and I said to the judge, I said to the officer, I said, I don't really know that you have the authority to issue me a citation. Let me tell you, the person with the question authority sticker in the back of the car suddenly doesn't want you to question authority, right? So, no, 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 no. They have the authority, and you've hit my car, therefore you, you must pay, right? The problem with authority is not that we don't believe that authority exists, but we just don't like authority. We, we like it when it serves us to, to meet our needs or what we think our needs are. 
right? And so we pick and choose is typically what we do. Listen to verse 4. Verse 4 says, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. I think part of the, this is the rub, I think part of the issue is that we're commanded. Like, we don't like to be commanded. We don't, especially here in the West, the individualist West, we do not like to be told what to do. Right? And, and, and then, but listen to what it says in verses 5 and 6, because this is the turning point. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. In other words, let me be consistent. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. What does that mean? What is shame? Shame, there, there are two types of shame. Shame can be either I've done something wrong, we would call that healthy shame, or I am wrong, unhealthy shame. And probably all of us in here have experienced both. Right? But shame is the evidence of a design that's flawed or a design that's gone wrong. When we feel shame, it's because something has gone wrong in the world and in our lives. And so we experience that. And so what then, now in light of that, what is the psalmist saying? He's saying, look, there is a design to the world. And when we follow the design, we will not be put to shame. But when things are out of design, when either we are violated or we violate someone else, we experience shame. That's what the psalmist is is saying here. It's, it's like this. There's, there's a design to the universe. And when there's a design, there's a designer. I, I've been putting up ceiling fans this weekend. And by the way, I, I don't understand why it took so long for people to realize that the best way to instruct someone on how to do something is, is a video. Right? I mean, if you, how many of you have ever tried to put Ikea furniture together? Right? You know, we've all been there, right? There should be like a club for us who've tried to put... Their, because you're looking at these minimal... Like, like that sort of Scandinavian design is minimalist. And so they decided that the instructions will also be minimalist, right? We're going to live into our culture here. We're going to give you some basic shapes and we're going to tell you what to do. And you're just saying, my gosh. And so thanks be to God now that people are learning how to create videos. These companies are saying, all right, if you want to install a fan, do that. Well, let me tell you, I am following that. Like every five seconds, I hit the pause button on that video. Okay, I need to do this. Okay, great, great, great. Pause. Okay. I mean, I'm following it to a T as much as I I know I can, right? And that's what happens. When you follow a design, good things follow from that, right? If you follow the design of of how to install uh, a ceiling fan, you keep the blue genie away, if you know what I mean, right? Keep from being shocked, and and then it'll it'll work, hopefully, that sort of thing. And this is exactly what what the psalmist is saying. It's like, man, if you follow the design, you're going to experience life. N.T. Wright, some of you know, one of my favorite theologians, a pastor as well, in the book Simply Christian, he said this about scriptures. The Bible, in fact, is not simply an authoritative description of a saving plan, as though it were just an aerial photograph of a particular piece of landscape. It is part of the saving plan itself. It is more like the guide who takes you around the landscape and shows you how you can enjoy it to the full. If you've ever gone to a, maybe a national monument or an historical site, you know this, that, that if there's a guide available, you get a lot more out of it, don't you? Right? There's just so much more. They, they, have, they have insights into the land that you don't. And, and that's what the psalmist is saying. There, there is life here. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. He says this very famously, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You hear the echo there from Psalm 119. Man, if, if we are, are complete, like, we'll be without shame. And, and this idea of all Scripture, let me tell you why that's so important. In fact, it said that in verse 6, didn't it? It said, fix my eyes on all your commandments. Note it didn't say, I'll fix my eyes on some of your commandments. And, and, and Paul didn't say, some Scripture is from the Lord. All Scripture. Here's why that's so important. It's not enough to simply say that Jesus is a Savior. He must be Lord. He has, and what does, what does that mean, Lordship? It means... You're preeminent in my life. You control my life. You command my life. You tell me where to go. You see? And when we pick and choose, like in, in our modern world, you can say this. You can say, well, man, I love what, what the Scriptures have to say about gender and sexuality. But man, this stuff about, about the cure for the poor and the powerless and how we treat the marginalized, uh, I, I've got some disagreements on that. right? Or maybe it's the opposite. Man, I love what the Scripture says about the treatment of the poor and the powerless and how we, how we manage our money for others and leverage it on behalf of others without power and privilege and so forth. But man, what it says about gender and sexuality, that's so antiquated. And the Scriptures don't allow for that. They say it's an all-or-nothing proposition. This is part of what we believe here at City Church Eastside. It is all-or-nothing, as it were. And let me tell you why that's so good. Let me tell you why this morning, if you don't already believe this, Leaving here today, you should say, I am so grateful that all of Scripture is authoritative because it avoids two extremes. We, as you know, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, we would say we are theological conservatives here at City Church Eastside. We believe in what I would call orthodoxy, an understanding of the Scriptures, that it's inerrant, that it's without error and truly is the inspired, authoritative Word of God. But let me tell you, you can swing the pendulum so far in theological conservatism that you actually leave the very thing that you believe in. Let me give you an example of that. There's a podcast that's more recently come out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's a great example of this. I won't go into details on it right now. I'll just encourage you listen to a couple episodes and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. We have a tendency in our corner of the theological universe to invest power in the leader of a religious community. That doesn't happen on the other end of the spectrum. It almost always happens on our end of the theological spectrum. Here's what I mean by that. And so I, as a, as a teaching elder, as a pastor, I'm under authority. I'm actually under the authority of the other elders of this church. And we derive our authority that we do have, we derive that from Scripture. It comes from God himself. So we don't have independent authority. All of our authority to instruct and lead and encourage comes from that. But the tendency, and I think this is true in the ancient world as much as the modern world, our tendency is to use what's called the deference construct. You know what the deference construct is? It's to defer. And so whenever anyone is in a position of authority, you just assume that because they're in a position of authority, they're speaking the truth. That's the deference construct. Now here's the reality. The reality is you all use the deference construct. You may use it with me, but I guarantee you, you use it somewhere in the world. Even when you become skeptical of, on some issue, on something, I'll, let me tell you, there's a good chance that you're skeptical because of the authority of someone else that you just have assumed is true because they hold your ideological point of view. We all use it, the deference construct. 
You know what's fascinating? In Acts chapter 16, Paul has been preaching the gospel of good news of Jesus to, in a place called Berea. And the Berean Christians challenge Paul. Not like, well, Paul, I don't, I don't know about that. Not that kind of question authority. Not that. But they, but they actually, it says that they open the scriptures and they test to see if what Paul has preached was actually what the scriptures say. Now, how is that possible? You must know the scriptures. The Berean Christians knew the scriptures. And here's Paul. If Paul came into this place and was preaching, you'd be like, whoa. I mean, this is like the Mac Daddy of church planners and pastors and theologians wrapped into one, Paul. And what did the Bereans do? They're like, well, let's make sure that Paul's telling us the truth. Let me tell you, that's the way to be under authority. And so, let me tell you, do not use the deference construct with me. Just because I'm the founding pastor. And yes, I, we work on our craft because preaching is a craft. But let me tell you, James chapter 3, verse 1 says, you should not want to take on the responsibility of teaching uh, without great ca- caution because of the responsibility. If Mike and I, and let's be honest, it's probably more Mike that will be the issue than me. Obviously kidding here. Mike's outstanding in the pulpit, as you saw last week, right? But you know, it doesn't matter how good our gifts are. Like, you can have a great communicator. There are plenty of churches that have fantastic communicators. But, I mean, sometimes I'll hear their stuff and I'll say, where's that in the Scripture? It doesn't matter how good, how charismatic a, a communicator is. What you want to know is, is it, are, are they ruled by the authority of, of God in the Scriptures? And does this reflect the heart of God? Because his scriptures are his character. And so on one end of the spectrum, we have to be really careful, especially in our corner of the world, I think, that, that we realize that power can be abused by religious authorities. I know that we know that. But just because uh, I would say it's not being abused here doesn't mean that you need to, to look to us with a deference construct. That's my point. But here's the other thing. On the other end of the spectrum, the theologically liberal in the spectrum, you have quite the opposite problem. Instead of uh, abuse of authority, often you have chaos. What I mean by that is that if, if Scripture isn't the Word of God, if it's not inerrant, if it's not authoritative, then what tends to happen is, is that's when we begin to pick and choose. That's in the place where, especially in the modern world, we say, well, I like what it says about economic justice, but not so much about gender and sexuality. You follow? So this is a problem. Because what happens is you become the arbiter. You play God. You become the person who determines this is what's of the Lord. This is what's not of God. I like this. I don't like this as much. And so it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on. Ideology, when it precedes theology, equals danger. Ideology before theology equals danger, friends. Right? Man, I, I think that's, there's such good news here. Because when, when Scripture is authoritative, it allows us to critique culture in the way that God designed us to I want to show you a picture. All right? I think we have this, don't we? Tell me we have the picture. Yes, there we go. Okay. I just forgot. It's not on the back screen here. So this is 1936 Nazi Germany at a factory in northern Germany there. And it, I don't know how well you can see it, depending on where you're here, but everyone is giving the Nazi salute except for one man. His name is Gustav Wergert. Gustav Wergert was a very committed Christian who on religious grounds said, I will not raise my arm. Because he understood 
that no one should be given that sort of power and authority over all of life in replacing God. Now here's the rub, okay? I know all of us in here, we see that and we say, yes, I hope I would do that in 1936, okay? Let me tell you something. Virtually every single person that photographed, if you were to interview them, man on the street, what do you believe? You know what they would say? I'm a Christian. How is that possible? It's so easy in the modern world to look at the past and to say, that clearly is wrong. But not so much back then. I only tell you, if, if culture is how you determine your beliefs, you will just be bobbing on the sea, drifting with the current. The Word of God is transcultural. The Word of God is eternal. And that allows us to determine when culture needs to be critiqued. This stuff very good understood that. Do we? God is neither a tyrant, nor is he chaotic, indifferent. It doesn't matter what you believe. He's good. His word is good, which leads to the second thing here. And that is the right attitude. I want you to look with me at verses 14 through 16. It says this, In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Again, I think some of us look at that statutes, rule, law, and we say, how do you get to delight? I mean, that's a pretty strong word, delight, regarding it. I, mean, I don't go to a stop sign and go, man, I'm so excited about a stop sign. Or you don't go see that red light. Oh, my gosh, I love the laws and the ordinances of the uh, city of Atlanta. Now, most of us can do the California roll, slow roll through the stop sign, probably something like that, right? That's what my grandfather called it. I have no idea. My apologies if you're from California. I have no idea why. Uh, but at any rate, you know, we, we don't have that, that. So why is he delighting here in law? Exactly. I kind of hinted at it already, but let me say two things. One, what brings to light? Number one, repetition. If you do something that you want to do in with repetition, you get better at it. Most of us in here have hobbies. By the way, the older you get, the harder it is to hold on to hobbies, I'm realizing. Right? Life, life sometimes gets in the way, so to speak, like career and, 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 and raising a family. But, man, hobbies are so important, and so hold on to them if you have them. But, but why do we have hobbies? Because there's something that we enjoy doing, right? There's something that, that brings a sense of life for us. And, and here's the thing, you get better at it, right? And so no matter what it is, whether it's cooking, whether it's some sort of athletic, I've, told, I've mentioned here uh, CrossFit, I enjoyed that the last seven or eight years of doing that. And let me tell you, when I first started seven or eight years ago, I did not like the movements of CrossFit. I mean, they were painful. Um, I, I would go in, I would come home the next day. They call it DOMS, Delayed Onset Muscle Soreness. And so if you've ever worked out any muscle group before and you haven't worked it out in a while, especially as you get older, it takes longer. Uh, and so, you know, I would, I would look at the menu, so to speak, uh, what was going on for the next day's class. And be part of me, I didn't want to go. You know, it was that sort of thing. I just didn't enjoy it. But then as I, as I did it more and more, year after year after year, and I began to see change. I began to see that, oh, these Olympic weightlifting movements, I can do them now. And, 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 my, and there's a connection between my muscles and my mind. I understood how to do those, kind of muscle memory, we call it. And so I began to make, uh, you know, gains, as it were, uh, there in the gym. 
And let me tell you, now when I see Olympic weightlifting movements on the menu, I get excited. Right? Well, why? Because there's, there's a joy for having done something and seeing success, right? And that's true in anything. And, and so I, I want you to understand something here. That is precisely what's going on here. Because for 176 verses, that repetition over and over again, when Kirsten and I went to Israel in 2008, we remember being there at the wall, uh, just the remnant of the temple there, and watching these Jewish men, these Orthodox Jewish men, you know, doing this motion here. You probably have seen it on video, and they just do this whole motion. And what they're doing is, there's this verse elsewhere in the Old Testament where, where their whole body is involved in the memorization of Scripture. They're getting the, their whole selves they're committing their whole selves, and physically they're practicing the whole self being involved in the memorization of the Word. And, and I don't know if it was bringing them joy to do that or not, but what clearly the, 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 the psalmist is saying is that, man, if we will commit ourselves to, to knowing Him, and we will repetitiously, we will get in there and saying, God, more of you, more of you, more of you. What he's saying, if I understand correctly, he's saying, man, delight comes. Let me tell you something. Discipline always is required for delight when it's involving a relationship in particular. Uh, I've been married to Kirsten for more than 21 years, and let me tell you, it takes discipline to stay married. Amen to that? It takes discipline, friends. I mean, it, it doesn't just happen. The natural default of my heart as well as yours is to move away from what it takes to remain in our vows. And that's true not just of marriage, it's true of any romantic. You could be just here single and dating, and let me tell you, it takes discipline. You've got to move beyond those first few dates where you know, it's all you know, singing choirs in the sky. And they're like, ah, this, he's amazing, she's amazing. Well, let me tell you, like, it, trouble's coming at some point, right? And so you've got to stay in the battle. And, and it takes discipline to work on yourself and to work on the relationship. And, and by the way, that's not just true of romance. It's true of any relationship. I, I meet with five pastors. We've been doing it for the last two years from around the country, senior pastors of churches. And, and uh, you know, often, sadly, it is the case that, that senior pastors can, can be pretty lonely. And, and so part of the design of this group is to be connected to other senior pastors so that we might not do life alone. And we just made the commitment two weeks ago that we're, gonna, we're committing long-term. It was a two-year commitment, but now we're committed you know, indefinitely moving forward here. And the last training we did before we're kind of launched as a community of friends, as pastors, is around friendship. And one of the things that we learned in, in our readings, in our conversations, was, man, friendship, it takes practice. It takes diligence. It takes determination. I mean, how many of you, you know, you think about, man, I haven't seen that friend in so for a long Why? Well, you know, if you're honest, you're saying, well, I, I just didn't pursue it, right? And, and like, you know that left to its own devices, a relationship will decline. And, and so what I want you to see here is this, this discipline here. And I love what it says in verse 15. It says, look back there with me again. It says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Here's the other thing. It's not just repetition. But it's the relationship there. Funny story. When I was in college my freshman year, my kids, Kirsten's heard the story before. Um, my kids have too. They're probably thrilled I'm going to be sharing this. So my freshman year in college, I'm in the cafeteria. And my hallmate and I would always come in at the same time to eat in about, I don't know, 50, 60 feet away. Every time I would look up from eating, there was this girl. And she would make eye contact, black eyes for a brief second, and her eyes would just go down real quickly like that. 
Now, I'm intrigued. You know, I don't have a girlfriend this time, and I'm intrigued. And so every, and this happens for like days, maybe a couple weeks. Like we keep this eye thing going on here. Like, well, it turns out that she was on my sister hall. And so, you know, brother-sister hall combination. Some of you had that going on probably in university. And, and so I got a chance to meet her finally, and I got the, the courage to kind of talk with her. Well, eventually we started dating. And so months go by. And, and so uh, I chuckle one day, and she says, what are you laughing about? And I said, well, I was just going back and remembering the time uh, that you were making eye contact with me, and that's what led to our relationship. Well, then she started laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? She says, Scott, I wasn't looking at you. I was looking at your hallmate next to you the whole time. Yeah, ouch is right. Yeah, talk about shame. Uh, what's wrong with the world here? See, it matters where you fix your eyes. You were wondering, how does that connect? There you go. It matters where you fix your eyes, you see? Right? And, and so what the psalmist is saying is that I, I am fully committed. Let me tell you why this is important. Because remember what I said earlier about picking and choosing here. Look, you don't actually have a relationship with your significant other if when you come into that relationship, you're like, you're allowed to make me feel good about myself, but don't ever challenge me. Scripture is there in part to challenge us. It is to counter us. If you are in a relationship with, in a marriage, right, and, 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 and really you're not allowed to be countered, the marriage is really about you. It's not about your dying to yourself, independence. That's what, it's what it requires. Any relationship, friendship, anything. So hear me on that. So, so you don't, you actually are looking at Scripture as just, a, ironically, as a series of rules. Whereas, whereas the psalmist is saying, no, it's about a relationship. So all relationships have boundaries. All relationships have markers. All relationships have, have their, so their relational rules, as it were, here. And you commit to those. You're disciplined with those. It leads to life, you see. I fix my eyes on your commandments. Don't you see? Far from being rigid, it's liberating. When you're in a relationship and the boundaries are good and your hearts are good, man, you don't look at the the vows, you don't look at the rules and say to yourself, man, unfair. No, quite the opposite. You say abundance. I'm flourishing. I'm experiencing life as I was designed. Exactly. How many of us have that attitude regarding the Word of God? The psalmist says we should. The psalmist says this is exactly what we do. We lose our independence. And paradoxically, we become free. We have design. And here's the key to it all. It's in verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Five times in these verses here and then multiple, many more times in this chapter, the word heart. If you're Jewish, the heart means something. The heart was the center of your soul. It was the center of your being. Whatever captures the heart captures your life. That's what it means in this sense. Your heart here. And what does he say? Guard it. And what's fascinating is the word there in Hebrew, shamar. The first thing that shamar is ever used in Scripture is Genesis chapter 2. 
And there, Adam is placed in the garden to tend to it and to keep it, as some English translations say, shamar, guard the garden. Why guard it? Well, we know in Genesis chapter 3. Remember what happens. The evil one comes to the garden, and what does he challenge there? The Word of God. Remember that? He challenged, he said, did not God say this about that one prohibition? He gave you just one prohibition. But let me tell you, he gave you a prohibition. He's holding out on you. He's limiting your freedom. You were made for more. How dare he tell you what you can and cannot do? What was Adam supposed to do? Evil one's saying this to Eve, by the way. And what does Adam do? He fails his commitments as a man. And he doesn't guard. He doesn't shamar Eve. He doesn't shamar the garden. He doesn't. And so here's what I'm saying here. The problem for us is that, that we need changed hearts, that we're made to shamar. We're made to guard in our hearts the Word of God. And yet, if your life is anything like mine, so many days I begin my day and I forget to guard it. And so all the world's messages come in on everything from politics to sexuality. And I can so easily forget, what does God have to say? Shamar. Which leads to the last thing here. We need to change heart. How does that happen here? We must find hope. And it's right here in these passages, in these scriptures. You see, these verses are really a picture of perfection. I mean, look at verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is what? Blameless, right? Who walk in the law of the Lord. And then verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? This is a picture of perfection. This is the, uh, the psalmist saying, this is what I want for my life. This is how I know I'm designed for life. This is what I'm committing to in my vows. But just like in a marriage, we make these vows, and yet the reality is there's a gap between our vows and how we actually live. Now, listen to at the very end of this passage, verses 174 and 176. After all this perfection, listen to what it says here. It says this, I long for your, what? Salvation, O Lord. And your law is my delight. And then here's the kicker. The very last verse, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. It echoes Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. The psalmist is saying, despite my longings, despite my vows, despite my commitments, I know there's a gap. And I know that I need salvation. I know that I can't close that gap on my own. I can't make up for the injustice. I can't make up for that which has gone wrong in the world through either me or through others. I can't do that. And so I'm longing. But remember what it says in Isaiah 53. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You see, the psalmist did not know exactly what the hope was. Looking forward with salvation. Isaiah the prophet knew a little bit more. He says, the Lord is going to bring a Messiah. And we're going to, our sin will be laid upon him. But you and I know the answer to this is Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where, where he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what it says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Remember, law, Torah, all the scriptures, including the Psalms, Torah. If you insert his voice into this passage, what do you get? Instead of the voice of the psalmist, you get the voice of Jesus. What do you get? Perfection. (laughs) Remember what it said in verse 5 there. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, that is consistent, in keeping your statutes. Jesus perfectly lived out the statutes of the Lord. 
His life was a model. And then you get John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Don't you see? Jesus is the expression of his promises into the world. He's the one who perfectly fulfilled what we could not. And he lived the life that we were intended to live, and he didn't die the death that we deserved. And now I want you to know this is such good news for us because he's the living word who instructs us on where to find life. How do we get life? How do we find life? You must come to know him. It's not like an owner's manual where you just read instructions. You must know him. It's a relational thing. So my question to you this morning is, do you know him? Do you know him and say, he is the Lord of my life? Not just that I believe that he's the Savior of sinners, but he is the Lord of my life. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Here's where I conclude. It changes everything. Listen to the, the voice of the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is the one who's helping non-Jewish people understand what was all this Jewish context, the culture behind the scriptures of the Old Testament. Here's what he says in chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Two things there, shame. Remember, if we follow your way, Lord, then I shall not be put to shame. But we have been put to shame. What does Jesus do? I will go to the cross. I will endure the shame. I will despise it in the resurrection, but I am shamed so that you won't live in shame. Don't you see that? And then what is it? How does it begin there? Looking to Jesus. Some translations, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Don't you see? When it says in the Psalms, fix your eyes on the commandments, what does it say in the New Testament? Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the expression, the DNA. He is the expression of Torah. If you want to know how to live your life, follow Jesus. Become a disciple. Learn to, learn to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Learn to embrace the poor and the powerless the way that he does. Learn to speak a word to power, uh, but learn to embrace that which he holds on to as life. For he is the designer of life itself. Last thing, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and amashing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Jesus Christ must indwell us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And when he does, and this is where I close, It creates what I call a double listening. You have one ear cocked to the Word of God because you have said, I want to know you, Lord. I want to marinate in your Scriptures on a daily basis. And so you're listening. This is the the primary voice of listening. But then you have another ear cocked to the world. And you're listening. What does the world say about sexuality? What does the world say about personal finance? What does the world say about my career? What does the world say about ethics? What does the world say about relationships? What does the world say about on and on and on? And the whole time that you're listening here, you're listening here primarily. And you're saying, based upon this, this is what's true over here. I can embrace this part of culture, but I can critique culture in this other place. Followers of Christ, we were made and designed in the modern world to do just that. How well are we listening? Are we doing a double listening? Listening to our primary source of life and truth, the Word of God, so that we might move well in this world, that we might call this world to something better than itself 
as Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. But thank you, as the writer of Hebrews says elsewhere, you are the final word, Jesus. You are the, the final proclamation of, of life and truth into this world. Jesus, it's so hard. We're going to wake up Monday morning, maybe not even that late. Maybe it'll just be later this afternoon, and we're going to forget this. Have mercy upon us as we're going to confess here in a second. Have mercy upon us, Jesus. We're grateful that it wasn't uh, salvation for the moment that we came to faith, but it's salvation forever. And so that when we fail, you lift us back up. Lord, I pray, give us a double listening. Give us a, a discipline as part of our discipleship, further up, further in. To drink richly and deeply, to marinate in your scriptures, for they are the source of life for us in you. So, Lord, have mercy upon us. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Amen.